really we need to kind of accept there are so many things that we don't have control of rather than thinking that we are in control of everything within our lives and that we can perfect them and optimize them and fulfill them. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, trivialities and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring outrage culture, arrival fallacy and the perils of instant gratification and lobbing some pretty big questions at my guests like, why do human beings find change so hard? What would a more inclusive society look like? And what is the difference between optimism and hope? This is a podcast that looks at the little things and the big things and asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Julia Samuel is a psychotherapist, grief counsellor and the founding patron of Child Bereavement UK. She is also the author of the acclaimed Grief Works and a new book, This Too Shall Pass, stories of change, crisis and hopeful beginnings, all about why resisting change only makes it harder to deal with. When life sucks, we say, this too shall pass. And hopefully it does, she writes. But here's the hitch. When life is good, it too inevitably will pass. There is an overload of information that we can get from every kind of different platform and source rather than sitting down and just reading a book, which was all I had. So when I had a baby, there were about three books that we read and they gave you a bit of psychological insight about attachment and Donald Winnicott, the good enough mother. And those were the kind of roadmaps that I took. I didn't go into libraries. I had I went to classes. So... In some ways, you could say that we made mistakes because we didn't know enough. But in other ways, it meant that we relied on our instincts, on our friendship circle, and we didn't have what I call our shitty committee, um, where we're constantly criticising ourselves or comparing ourselves to everybody else who's doing it better, whose babies reach their first milestone first, which means they're going to be sort of president of the, well, I wouldn't say the United States, it was a girl people wanted now, but, you know, was going to lead in their field and whatever subject they wanted. We were just following what we knew, making some of them same mistakes, making different mistakes, wanting to do it differently from our parents, but not crazed by what you call comparinitis. And I think that was much easier. Do you think that's something that's particularly related to the internet and social media? Yeah, and, and Instagram, the sort of curated perfect world. I mean, the one of the things I talked about in the book is identity and that the core of each of our identities, whether they're as a role as a parent or our racial identity or our gender identity, is that each aspect of it needs to be loved and to have a sense of belonging and to be valued for who they are. And also, we need to belong to our tribe, because if, if from an evolutionary perspective, we were expelled from our tribe, 
we would probably die. But also from an evolutionary perspective, we need to stand out and be noticed so that we can attract a mate. So those are two kind of competing drives in us that we're wired with as human beings. And I think what's happened with social media, particularly picture ones like Instagram, is that people put their most vulnerable kind of core selves out onto a platform where they're not being loved and valued for their core selves or what they are, they're compared with. And so the response that you get back always feels empty. And then that's a horrible negative cycle. And I think it's incredibly confusing. The bad stuff will pass, you write, but here's the hitch, so will the good. And I thought that was particularly confronting, but also necessary, because there is definitely this pressure to enjoy everything and to be building this technicolour life. And whilst it's really reassuring that you say to us, you know, this too shall pass, when you remind us that the good stuff will also pass, it's quite confronting. It's quite a leveller, I think, of our sort of expectations of happiness now. Really, we need to kind of accept there are so many things that we don't have control of, rather than thinking that we are in control of everything within our lives and that we can perfect them and optimise them and um, fulfil them, recognising the sort of paradox that we have agency and control over some of our choices, but the things that matter to us most, birth and death and what people feel about us, we can influence, but fundamentally we have no control. And, you know, it was through my work of working with families where children died and working with death, which is a sort of fundamental thing that you have no control over and forces you and exposes you to look at what really matters in your life. You then kind of reevaluate what you care about. What I kind of learned from them was that if they were going to find a way of living after the death of a child, which kind of you know, tears up the rule book of life of what you trust and what you believe in. They had to surrender control over what they couldn't control. Do you think the pandemic will change our relationship with control in the long term? Will we be more able to surrender to the chaos? I think it can go either way. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I've been banging on about for decades is to kind of recognise our mortality and kind of use that as a an influence of what decisions you do make, knowing that, you know, life is finite and that you are going to die. And that when you look back on your life, it's your love and connection to others that in the end matters to you most. Um, but also it informs your decisions and who, what you talk about and protects other people from regrets. So I think people feel, you know, seeing a pathogen heading towards them in the form of a person walking down a street or down your, the aisle in, in a supermarket, I think people do feel much more mortal. But I think it can do it can either crank up their want to have control or it might ease some people's... I think it, it's going to change people's attitudes about what matters. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of that is much more to do with the behavioural changes that lockdown forced... Mm -hmm. like being at home and not commuting, being less busy. I mean, some people were incredibly busy, but I think it's the effects of lockdown rather than the threat of the pathogen. And people's relationship with, you know, watching the spring, 
in a way that nobody had before, seeing that the planets rested, all of those things, I think, will influence people. It's a sort of confined busyness, though, isn't it? You write that the most yeah. common way to resist change is to be too busy to engage with it. Well, we can't distract ourselves like we normally can. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, busyness is an anaesthetic and it blocks you from feeling in the... And feeling is the agent of change. Feeling the discomfort of something that you, you don't like, you become aware of, or the pain of something that is really difficult forces you to look at reality that you don't want to look at. And that forces change. But the thing about... This is that if you look at 9-11 or 2008, where everybody said they wanted a kinder, gentler world afterwards, that didn't happen. People find change incredibly difficult and often they prefer the comfort of the familiar than the discomfort of change. I was really interested in the idea that many of us will choose unhappiness over change. Is that a subconscious thing? I mean, I think... As a kind of vote for millennials, I think all of you are much more emotionally intelligent and much more emotionally aware than our generation. That does create a kind of storm of confusion and too much choice and, you know, what is a good life? But on the other hand, I think people are much more aware of what they're feeling and making decisions, using them so that they have more congruent lives with who they are and... and I think they're much more uh, reflective. Possibly too aware. One of the things I'm really interested in is this idea that our online and offline selves should or could be in alignment. Is this pursuit of a unity of self fruitless? Yeah, and as a, and as a therapist, I'm much more interested in your internal world than even, you know, seeing you what I can see in person, let alone online. And I think the the problem, you know, having online connection is far better than no connection, particularly for people who are living alone. And as a therapist, it's meant I've maintained my relationship with all of my clients. It has enormous value, I think, and and has enabled all sorts of things to continue in a way that they never would have done. So I feel very grateful for it. How does Zoom change the way you do therapy? Presumably it's a bit harder because you can't see body language. The foot tapping. <laughs> well, funny enough, I mean, I've worked with um, Zoom for quite a long time, for a couple of 18 months. It is different, but it, you get other benefits. So you don't pick up the body language of the foot tapping or um, the way they grip the chair or, you know, lots of those nonverbal messages. But their face is magnified, so I can read their eyes more. Some people feel freer being at home, um, so they're more open. And with some people, I've done it without the video. So it's been like old-fashioned psychoanalysis. So you work with the tone of the voice and the space and the breath and build your connection like that. What makes your book so approachable and so malleable, I think, for so many people to be able to apply to their lives is the structure of it, whereby you tell stories about change through your clients, past and present. I wanted people to feel like I was in the room with them. I wanted the, the therapy that I did to feel alive because I wanted it to be the book that people could use who couldn't necessarily access therapy. 
so that they, you know, I think the most personal is the most universal. So by reading someone else's story like Rachel, or Jackson was one, you know, young man looking for love, a lot of people saw themselves in that. Yes, the story of Rachel will resonate with a lot of women, I think. You write that Rachel represented a generation of women who almost knew too much, and the information they were juggling in their brains was making them crazy. You talk in the book about how you felt anxious when one client ghosted you, and at another point you talk about your own limitations uh, as a therapist with your own identity. Was it difficult to decide whether or not to let the mask slip, for want of a better word? No, I just didn't know. I couldn't have done it any other way. So the therapist that is on the page is how I am. So I'll, I don't tell them, you know, I had a filthy ride with my horrible husband last night and, you know, let's <laughs> reverse roles for five minutes. Um, but... I, and I, I don't really use anecdotes or my own stories, but I use myself and I use my experience. I mean, one person says they can tell by my eyebrow whether I kind of agree with them or not. So people read you the whole time. Then it goes up, I suppose, arch. It arches. So yes, I've got this family that I'm seeing now. And <laughs> so it's a husband and wife and their 28-year-old son and his mother as well. And the fantastic family, and they they have they talk about my look that I give them a look, which is when I'm kind of obviously not approving of something that they've said, and then they all burst into laughter. So I mean, you know, eighty percent of communication is nonverbal. So I didn't even know how you and I are communicating at all since we can't see each other. That's really interesting because there is this sort of myth, isn't there, about the therapist? Maybe it's more Freudian therapy where this happens. I don't know where they don't really say anything it's just and how did that make you feel you know you can't they're completely inscrutable but I don't feel like there's total inscrutability with you so that is much more analysis so there's three sort of um, models of therapy there's analytic cognitive behavioral and humanistic and I'm humanistic and they are all merging a bit more they're much less sort of boundary than they were in their sort of methodology but humanistic is always much more about facilitating the authenticity of the relationship. So Mm -hmm. it means that the therapist, not in a promiscuously honest sort of way, but in a genuine that what they're feeling is what they're showing, is how you build a relationship. In my frame, being authentic is what you're feeling on the inside is what you show on the outside. So someone trusts you, so they can tell that what you're saying is what you really think and feel. But sometimes people mistake that for promiscuous honesty, where you kind of then say, well, I don't like the colour of your shirt and I think you've made a terrible choice in a husband or, you know, it's using it with integrity for the benefit of your client, not sort of leaking out what you gossipily think. As you're talking about um, someone's outer casing, I was really struck by you admitting that even as a therapist, you are still sometimes deceived by someone's appearance, that just because someone's okay on the outside, they must be okay on the inside. And logically, we know that the two are not always connected. But why do we so often try and read one another like a book? I mean, it's so interesting. Like with clothes, you're going to buy that pink summer dress and that pink summer dress is going to give you the life that you want. And I think that's a version of it. I mean, I think maybe... 
evolutionary science is someone's face is more genetically pleasing or something so we assume we make assumptions about them that they must be all right I actually don't know I don't know how much is conditioning I don't know how much is biologically wired but I know it happens and certainly all the research shows it happens um, that how you look has an impact on you being employed for instance I think as well that's something that feels very dangerous when it comes to mental health is this idea that a woman looked well you know she had clean hair and her skin was glowy and she took care of herself this idea that just because she is taking care of herself externally that she would be taking care of herself or feeling looked after on the inside yeah I mean I think that is scary and I think that's one of the big big fault lines of social media I'm interested in what you think the impact of regularly externalising our feelings on social media is. It has obviously opened up the dialogue around mental health enormously. But I also wondered, are we in danger of overwriting ourselves emotionally? That's a lovely way of putting it. I mean, the thing that I would add to that is it's who you direct your most inner self in words to. So that I think it really matters that when you're speaking about a very tender or fragile or complex part of yourself, that you only do it with people that you trust, that you know really care about you, who have your best interests at heart. And so that you feel more known after you've spoken and that you know yourself a bit better and you feel kind of released from the tension of the pain that you felt to kind of let other feelings in. And I think what happens much more commonly is the side of it um, that worries me is when people use words online, huge, great, massive kind of texts to thousands of people. And I think that, you know, they'll never get the response that they need. It will never meet them at the heart that, that, that needs meeting. And it will... Um, cause more fracture rather than less. I want to touch briefly on grief, which is an enormous subject, and the subject of your first book, Grief Works, a book which helped so many people I know enormously. When you interviewed the writer, Kathy Rensenbrink, the author of another brilliant book, A Manual for Heartache, she said to you that she had thought that if you're a good girl, if you try really hard, then everything is going to be okay. And that when her brother died, one of the most shocking things is that that was not true. That you could do all those things and everything would not be okay. Is this a common sentiment to feel like, even in the wake of senseless tragedy, the grief of which no pre-planning can protect you from, to think that if you just tried a bit harder, everything would have been okay? We sort of think if we work our hardest and focus all of the sort of ways of learning that we've had before that have worked for us before, but death creates a new challenge that previous self does not operate for. And it's the paradoxical theory of change that helps, which is the more you can accept the aspects of yourself and life that you find unacceptable the more likely it is that change will occur. So that 
you can't battle it, you can't will it, you can't, because every time you do, using those tools that you've done before, you just hit the brick wall. And so you have to find a way of surrendering to it. I like the way you don't try and say that everything happens for a reason or it's just the sort of passage of time. Like you will say in your books, you know, this is absolutely the most unfair and horrible thing platitudes can be quite hard in that moment can't they just like you know it's the circle of life or and you're very quick to say this is this is hideous and I felt awful I think when you jump too soon to comfort or to try and make it better you diminish the enormity of the tragedy you know so there's there's so many awful expressions like you know God only tests those that can be tested or God loved them so much he wanted them sooner or they're in a better place or, you know, all the terrible things that are meant to comfort you that actually just make you boil with rage and want to shoot the person that's talking to you. The whole they've gone to a better place relies on the assumption that the person who is grieving is religious because otherwise, why have they gone to a better place? They've only gone to a better place if you think that heaven is the ultimate goal. I tell you what's interesting about that, and I work with a lot of young people, is that they may not sort of follow the institutions of any religion, but when bad things happen, they pray. Or when they're, you know, if something bad happens to them, most people pray. They couldn't tell you who they are praying to, but it is a sort of, it seems to me, a kind of human instinct to look up to some kind of higher power, just help me now because I don't know what else. I can do or I can't, don't know if I can bear this or I can cope with this. Science and technology have given us this false sense of control and power, where fundamentally the things that we, as I've said before, we mind most about, we don't have control. But now we've seen people who are even, t- it used to be that medicine offered that solution. And now we've seen people tiring of the limitations of medicine. And so instead looking to wellness as something miraculous. Do you think that the the downside of modern medicine is that we do have an absolute fear most of us have an absolute fear of death or of losing someone we love yeah i mean i do think that death being hidden away in hospitals that we don't see dead bodies in the way that we did that what we don't know frightens us and you know what we imagine is kind of limitless whereas the reality is we can kind of deal with however difficult the reality is. And I think we also have magical thinking, which is that if I don't think or talk about death, then it's not going to happen to me or anyone I love. Um, So when it does happen, they've had no kind of self-preparation or no discussions with people, you know, about the things that really matter. And then it's much, much more frightening. And you get on a sort of roller coaster of trying to have control over something that you don't have control of. So, yes, I think ignorance. It's more of a Western fear as well, isn't it? Because our kind of death rituals are much more hidden away, whereas in a lot of other cultures you would have the uh, body on display and relatives come round and pay respect. It's more of a sort of um, ceremonial and public physical grieving. And the the first task of mourning, and probably the first task of any 
difficulty is facing the reality of the loss. You know, what is the loss? What does it mean? And the level of the loss is equal to the emotional investment in the thing that that you've lost. So if it's your job, it's a living loss. And how bad you feel about it will depend on how much you care about that job and what it means to you and if it meant everything to you. But the task is to face the reality of it. And some people don't. And, and to do that, you have to feel the pain. So how we heal in any grief, whether it's a living loss or a, a loss by death, is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain. The pain forces us to adapt and change. And through that, we then accommodate the loss. I don't think we get over loss. I don't think, I think it's always there and it leaves its mark on us. Um, but we can grow from it and grow around it. But if we block the pain, which we do with business or alcohol, or like you say, wheeling in our mind and going on the internet trying to find an answer, then we stay, stay stuck with that loss. And then we do have less joy and less success in life. And we're much more brittle. And it cuts us off emotionally as we move through our life. Both you and I share um, similar opinions on the fact that human beings are in a state of flux, which is comforting, but also quite terrifying, I think, to lots of people. You write, our identity will require ongoing negotiation. What do you say to someone who says, but I just want to know myself, Julia, I don't have the time to be trying to get to know a whole new self every single day? I would say to them that you can kind of fight it all you like, but this isn't something that you can control. Be as angry as you like, hold on to, on to it and your resistance. But if you hold on to the resistance, you're using up a lot of energy that can be engaged with living and exploring and being out in the world. So we only have a finite amount of energy. If we use it to stay where we are, we have less pleasure. I like something that someone said to me recently. I'm not sure of the source of it, but you might know that we should not be called human beings, but human becomings. It's quite trite, but I thought really helpful. Oh, I just hate all that stuff. Can't we just... <laughs> so you don't want a mug that says human becoming? No. I, I don't want a mug with human being on either, or a T-shirt. I mean, of course what they're saying is right. But it's like, oh, for God's sake. But what about when you travelled to North America? How do you feel about all the positive affirmations? Like, you are your own solar system, or... You are your own Shiro. How do you feel about that one? I hate them all. <laughs> I do. Lo I, 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 I love um, Have a Nice Day. I really like it. I like friendliness. I like all that. But all that stuff, I don't know. It just seems fake to me. It just seems fake. I'm, you know, it just feels like it's a, it's a, a brand selling something. I loved what you said about your marriage, that you've been in five different relationships with the same man because I think that is definitely something that we all forget that it's not just you changing the other person's changing as well and ergo your relationships in a state of flux I'd love to end on your eight pillars of strength that you discuss at the end of this too shall pass how did you come up with those pillars and are you able to distill them for our listeners 
So I came up with them because when people are kind of unhappy and going through a difficult change in their life, which all of them are in this two shall pass, they often kind of feel empty inside or they feel like they don't have enough. And so the pillars are like a sort of architectural scaffolding to help you hold yourself up when you feel like you can't hold yourself steady. And they're a set of attitudes and behaviours and ways of being that fundamentally the purpose of them is when things are difficult, your whole um, system goes haywire. So the pillars are um, actions and ways of being that you can do that help balance you and help steady you. Because if your whole system is in fourth gear, you don't have enough psychological energy or input online to make good decisions or to support yourself. So you need to have these pillars, which I will come into, to balance you to then kind of build your resilience. I mean, one of the big messages in my book is that A, we're not fixed, that we adapt and change if we support ourselves, and B, is that we can build resilience. So we're not, we're not born, we can be born fragile or have highly, be born highly sensitive, but there are things that we can do that can build our, our robustness to deal with the complexity of the world. And so the pillars, just to name them, I think it, people would literally die of boredom if I went into them, are your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, um, the mind-body connection, limits, um, your relationship with time, structure, um, and focusing, which is a kind of way of calming yourself down. Those are the key ones. If you are born as a highly sensitive person, or if you have historically been a highly sensitive person, can you become someone who is resilient and able to well handle or well navigate change? So my kind of view is that how you're born and also the things that happen to you, you can't reverse and undo. That is who you are. And the things that happen to you leave a mark in you. But the thing that you can change is your relationship with that. Um, and some of it is acceptance, is that, you know, if you if you, one of the big aspects, if you're born highly sensitive, that you feel a lot more, you're born with like a skin is missing, is not to fight it and want to have a leather skin, but to recognise that you're sensitive. And then treat yourself with that respect and empathy that you don't put yourself in positions that you're going to constantly get scorched and also develop behaviours that soothe you and calm you. So one of the things with with people who are HSP is often they're introverts so that, you know, they consciously give themselves time to have time out to calm themselves down. Those kinds of things make a big difference. But this idea that you can reshape your whole being into a different version of yourself, I think, is absolute bollocks. <laughs> Thank you very much, Julia Samuel. It's been a pleasure to have you on Doing It Right. It's been a pleasure being on. Lovely to meet you. If you enjoyed this episode of Doing It Right, please do subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform so that you can enjoy more episodes out every Monday.